Welcome to All Together Now. This is Eleanor Lacan. The majority of Americans are struggling financially, not just the 10% who are poor that Michael Harrington talked about in The Other America, but more than half of Americans now struggle to pay for housing and food each month. We know the top 1% owns more wealth than 90% of the rest of us combined. Just 10 years ago this fall, there was a big pushback against this situation when a group set up an encampment to occupy Wall Street in New York City. The encampment sparked a widespread discussion in the media about economic inequality and spurred a broad social movement. The Occupy movement involved hundreds of thousands of people from New York City to San Francisco and beyond. In fact, in more than a thousand towns across the country and around the world, many of whom created their own protest camps in solidarity. Now, on the 10th anniversary of Occupy Wall Street, we'll discuss what happened with the Occupy movement. What was its original goal? How effective was the leaderless approach to organizing? How did the Occupy movement reflect the very inequities it was trying to address? What impact did the Occupy movement have on addressing inequality, if any? And what can we learn from Occupy about building effective movements for needed change? Our guest today has been hired at work answering all these questions and more. Sociologist Heather Hurwitz just published a book about the Occupy movement titled, Are We the 99%? The Occupy Movement, Feminism and Intersectionality. And she is here to talk with us about it today. Heather Hurwitz, welcome to All Together Now. Thanks for having me on, Eleanor. Yeah, well, I was very interested to read your book, as you know, Occupy was so big, it kind of exploded on the scene, and then it seemed to disappear. So I was really curious to read your analysis of, of what happened. But let's start with, like, what was the intention of Occupy Wall Street? What was the purpose? What were people trying to do with it? So just to bring your listeners back, and you referenced this already a little bit, 2007 and 2008, we experienced a global Great Recession, a major crash of the stock market, the implosion of the housing market. Many people lost their homes, lost their jobs. It was a great economic downturn. Um, people graduating from college and high school at that time could not find work. And the Occupy movement was one of the movements to respond to this global economic crisis. Some of the first places were Greece, um, in the Arab world, in Egypt, in Tunisia, in Spain. And while all of these protests around the world were happening, activists in New York were watching. They were doing solidarity actions, and they felt that a response in the United States was needed to push for greater economic equality in the US and also greater democracy. So those were really their two key orienting goals. However, the movement was very diverse. As you mentioned, more than a thousand encampments sprung up very quickly 
in the fall of 2011, and people in their own local places and experienced activists brought other concerns and goals to the movement as well. Right, exactly, which you talk about and give a great analysis about in your book. And and what was your role? Were you there at the encampment of Wall Street? Were you at a supportive one? Were you kind of the academic watching what was happening with interest? What was your role? I wore three hats as I participated in the Occupy movement. The first one was as a researcher. I was in the middle of graduate school at the time, and I was looking to study a movement that was diverse, that men, women, and genderqueer people were all participating in. And serendipitously, the Occupy movement went viral right as I was deciding the kind of research that I would undertake and write a book about. And so I started participating in the movement online. I was watching the movement. I was noting the kinds of discussions coming out of New York City and San Francisco and the Oakland area, which were places that really set a tone for the national movement. At the same time, the second hat that I wore was I have been a longtime activist for more than two decades. And I was interested in the goals of the movement, like many people attracted to the idea of the 99% And also, like many young people, concerned about my future prospects Mm -hmm. when I would finish graduate school. And I felt that this movement was making some important inroads in raising discussion about inequality throughout the United States. And just quickly, the last hat that I wore was as a feminist. I've been a feminist activist and researcher for many years. And with that lens, I thought somewhat critically about this framing of the movement as a 99% that this diverse group of people that is the 99% could come together. And I noted online a lot of tensions about gender, about race that were happening even from nearly the beginning of the movement. And I was so curious to understand how these tensions were playing out in the movement and whether the movement could hang together and persist. Right. As Benjamin Franklin once said in the American Revolution, either we hang together or we're going to hang apart. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, important. And uh, I'm so glad you talked about the dual purpose of Occupy Wall Street. It was both the wealth inequality and democracy. And we know how intertwined they are. Uh, You know, the more money, the great wealthy people have, the more impact they can have on our democracy, and then they use that influence to increase their wealth. So it's kind of this very negative cycle right now. Um, And we have to break out of it. I mean, you mentioned being a graduate student. Right now, student loans are over a trillion dollars. So, you know, these are our bright young people coming up, and we're putting this big yoke of a trillion dollar debt around their neck before they even start to come out and work. So, uh, you know, we really, it's a, it's a critical moment to really address it. Uh, so rise to the moment, here comes Occupy movement. Um, you mentioned some tensions. I want to get to those in a minute, but first, what would you say now, 10 years, you've done 
you were engaged in the activities, you were studying them at the time and after, what impact would you say the Occupy movement had on addressing the dual problems of inequality and democracy? The movement put an important spotlight on inequality. The uh, idea of the 99% versus the 1% is a household term. And before the movement, there was not as much discussion about economic economic inequality in the news. And now it's kind of everywhere. This Mm -hmm. idea of the 1% as a segment of the ruling class that needs to be regulated is something basically in the news every day. Um, It's radically shaped Bernie Sanders agenda and it influenced the Democratic Party. And um, the Occupy movement really brought that framing of inequality to our national discussion. They also brought people into the streets in a way that they hadn't been before. And they made protesting something very accessible for people in the big cities and also in small towns. Today, protesting, and over the last 10 years, protests have become very commonplace. And this wave of protests really started with the Occupy movement. It started in the streets and it also started online. And this was one of their other contributions. It was the first movement. It's hard to think back (laughs) this far, but it was the first movement to use extensively Facebook and Twitter to organize. That really hadn't happened before this movement. There were even Twitter workshops happening within the encampments to get people online and knowing how to tweet and the movement really had this kind of dual presence in person and online. And now that way of organizing is very commonplace. A lot of people got trained up in doing that kind of organizing and it's continued into movements like Black Lives Matter. People brought those skills into organizing for the Bernie Sanders movement and those Occupy networks really have assisted um, future movements to remain organized. Yeah, I think that's an excellent summary. Um, it and it does get at this whole theme: the ninety-nine percent. We are the ninety-nine percent. Does speak to the issue I raised at the introduction to the program. We're no longer talking about maybe ten percent of the American population in extreme poverty, you know, we think Appalachia, you know, we think places in the country where these pockets of poverty, we're talking that the common experience now, the majority of people in the country are really struggling financially, you know, to pay the rent, to pay the mortgage, to get food on the table, the cost of housing is soared, trying to pay back the loans is tough. You know, people get credit card debt because they're trying to they use their credit cards to cover the fact they don't earn enough money to pay the bills. Then they get stuck paying credit card interest and you're in this downward spiral. This is not just a few people. This is now the common experience of living in this country. 
Um, so I think the framing, we are the 99%, really helped to blow out that it, we're only talking about a small number of people with a trouble here. This is like 99% of the people are really, not that all 99% are struggling. I mean, the top 10% is okay, but really 90% are struggling. So um, I really appreciated that. And you talk about some of these other movements that sprang out of Occupy that I think you're right. It gave people a sense of hope, sense of, you know, movement, how to build the movement, how to engage people to tackle big issues and to engage people like the, the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, did the, the three women who started the Black Lives Movement, were they involved in Occupy or did they kind of learn from it and get energized by it? Do you know? I don't, I don't know a specific answer to that question. I, I don't want to say, I don't want to speak for them. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, what I do know is that uh, there were, of course, many experienced activists who were experienced in racial justice organizing before the Occupy movement. Uh, there were, there were active protests against police brutality, especially in the Oakland area. Mm -hmm. So these were some of the pre-existing networks and structures that then when Occupy kind of went viral, those groups participated in this viral moment of Occupy and activists within Occupy were watching in early 2012, the case of Trayvon Martin and his unjust killing. And within the Occupy movement, they contributed to hoodie marches to seek justice for Trayvon Martin. And then soon after, within a year, the Black Lives Matter movement began with um, Opal Tometi and Patrice Colors and Alicia Garza and uh, many of the people who had been active you know, before Occupy, during Occupy and the racial justice organizing that happened, uh, I think found a really important outlet in the Black Lives Matter movement mm -hmm. uh, where the movement was really centering race and racial injustice and addressing a lot of other issues. Of course, Black Lives Matter also addresses sexual inequalities and um, class issues as well. And it was a really important opening when the Occupy movement had not really centered race and had not brought in those intersectional perspectives. So a lot of activists kind of jumped into that. Right. And the Black Lives Matter movement took something that had been some of these smaller protests around individual murders and mistreatment. Um, it really took it big. And like like the Occupy movement became very broad, very multiracial with a lot of people going, hey, this has gone way too far. We've got to stop this white supremacy and white on black violence. So I think you're right about kind of drawing some parallels there. So we are the 99%, the great unifying slogan, talked about unifying people around this idea of moving towards greater wealth equality and greater democracy. 
And yet the movement itself, despite being perhaps the broadest movement in at least a generation, um, ended up having a lot of fault lines within it that led to separation and division within that broader movement. And really, in some ways, your book is an analysis of what were those fault lines why did they happen? And um, I, I want to talk about like what we do about it down the road. But right now, if you could just say, like, what were the fault lines that led to a weakening of that broad uh, unification around we are the 99%? I did talk to many people who were refreshed by the idea of the 99% and energized by it and felt Finally, we're having a discussion about economic inequality in this country. And there were also a large number of people who questioned, are we the 99%? Are we really this kind of unified collective that we're going to call the 99%? And should we really be occupying? Should that be the way that we name our movement and come together. And there were groups of um, feminists who said, women are experiencing the Great Recession in a way that's very different from a lot of men. And depending on your racial identity, depending on your age, there are so many differences in the ways that people are experiencing this Great Recession to call our movement the 99% really kind of glosses over those specifics. And there were also activists who came to the movement and said, you know, we definitely want economic equality, but we have to recognize the history of racism in this country, even the history of colonization. And We've been trying not to occupy or not be occupied for many of the indigenous activists that I spoke with. Um, you know, occupying is not the best name for us. We're trying to get away from being occupied. What we really want to do is decolonize. And there was a whole sub movement and really a protest movement within the Occupy movement seeking to change the name uh, from Occupy to decolonize, to really signal that experience of racial inequality and the desire to transform it. Yeah, and uh, you describe in your book some of the ways that there is this differential impact, you know, this impact on women versus men in the economy. We know how big that difference can be. Whites versus pretty much any people of color. There's a real variation in the amount of wealth that that's held. Um, you talk about, you refer to queer and I just want to clarify for our listeners, you use that term basically to describe, it seems anybody that's not, you know, gay, lesbian, bisexual, kind of not identifying with the heterosexual mainstream norm. So, um, so 
And also, by the way, economically, you talked there, which you didn't mention here, but you do in the book. Economically, there's a very big difference. If you are in the the top 10%, like the 2% to 10%, you are in a very different wealth category than basically everybody else in the other 90%. And uh, that experience, it, it people are experiencing that very different. You can have millions of dollars and be in the top 10%, um, not possible below that 10%. In fact, it's some experiencing extreme poverty or real economic hardships. Um, so there's a big variation within that 99%, which by the way, I saw Abigail Disney once at a meeting and I was talking with her about wealth inequality. And she says, yeah, you know, I've got several hundred million dollars, but some of these guys have real money. <laughs> and she's talking about the people like Jeff Bezos with $150 billion and growing. So there's real stratification in terms of the wealth difference that's there. So I think it's very hard to draw people around without some sensitivity to those variations. And instead of having sensitivity to those variations, the actual Occupy movement seemed to have a blind eye to that, which led to some fragmentation. Um, and I think some of that, and you rightly in your book point to the problem of structurelessness, that the culture of the Wall Street or the Occupy Wall Street was very much about well, we're for democracy. We want to be horizontal. Everybody is equal. We're going to share leadership. We don't want anyone to dominate and take over our group. Um, but they kind of went too far the other way. And uh, so talk about the the leaderless culture of Occupy. Your comments make me think about <clears throat> one of the important subgroups within the Occupy movement, the 24-7 occupiers. This is a name that hom homeless persons gave to themselves because in the dark of night and as it was getting colder, um, the people who were holding down a lot of these encampments were homeless populations. And on the one hand, the movement was kind of incredible to bring together homeless persons, homeless activists, and people of various economic classes, you know, the unemployed millennials who had just graduated from college. Uh, I think there was a lot of learning and sharing among people of these diverse class backgrounds. However, those college graduated millennials, um, other educated folks, people who were housed and who could go home easily and, and take a shower, um, had more privilege that they brought to the protests and a kind of weight to their voices that they brought in. And then we and other followers, I, I say the term followers uh, with a great admiration. This was a movement where leaders, followers, volunteers, people were very, very active um, 
in my mind, it takes leaders and followers to make a movement. And there was a lot of collaboration there. And followers actually had a lot of power to recognize who they wanted to lead and who they wanted to take responsibility. The problem with a movement where you don't have a structure, voting, or some other system to distribute leadership and distribute responsibilities equitably and often uh, when you have a movement like Occupy that was very volunteer-based, it was whoever wanted to jump in and oftentimes who had the loudest voice or who kind of sounded the best to other people in the group, those people ended up taking on more responsibility, more decision-making for the movement. And even though the movement was really striving to have that great diversity of voices contribute in this moment, when you have sort of a, a competition almost for those uh, positions of more responsibility, um, you know, the 24-7 occupiers uh, had a lot of other things on their plate to try to survive at the encampments. And some did not have the same kinds of skills or privileges that maybe experienced activists had brought into the movement from other places. And so there was a real defaulting to people who already had privilege, be it class privilege, gender privilege, um, racial privileges, you know, white men taking on a lot of those responsibilities and just kind of defaulting to this more of what we think of as traditional leaders. Yeah, so I want to explore this point with you a little bit, because I think this is critical, uh, both to your analysis of Occupy and to the future of movements. I understand wanting to have broad-based uh, shared leadership, but at the same time, it's not a very efficient way to organize. And um, there are people who are skilled. And I'm not saying that the ones who rose to the top, given the structurelessness of, of the Occupy movement, it did seem to allow the loudest voices, the ones who would grab the mic or had uh, more competitive, more aggressive were the ones who would rise up without any structure. So yes, I think right from the get-go, that's a losing way to go. Um, but at the same time, don't you think there is a role for structured leadership for some people who have experience, who have expertise, who people have confidence in them? They may be well-spoken. They may have experience having organized before. I mean, doesn't it make sense to... Uh, encourage and support leaders to help show the way forward and, and uh, the Occupy movement or any other movement? It does. And there needs to be a way that we identify those important leaders who have those leadership skills already and listen to those leaders. And um, at the same time, I think, um, have leadership trainings 
for people who have a lot of potential to be leaders, but maybe they're part of a more marginalized group that's not a typical leader, that's not typically the ones interviewed in the media. Um, if we want to have diverse leadership of progressive movements, we need to rethink leadership. And we really need to recognize that within leadership, within how we even think about leaders or legitimate leaders, we have biases, we have default kind of structures, we have default comfort with who we feel are appropriate leaders. So that recognition, I think, really needs to happen if we don't just want to reproduce the same typical leaders again and again. And another aspect of this that was happening in the Occupy movement was that um, at times, some of the more seasoned activists, leaders from, let's say, um, the anti-nuclear movement or feminist leaders who were coming into the movement who maybe, again, didn't have that look or sound of being uh, a kind of traditional leader. So many um, women, older women, women of color, who actually did have experience and leadership skills in these other contexts, when they came into Occupy, they were not readily accepted by the group as legitimate leaders. Um, they were not seen in the same way that many of the white men leaders were just seen and accepted. And, you know, I'm sure that there was a lot of heightened, you know, need in this viral moment. But at the same time, followers need to put into check when they're falling back on these default ways of thinking about who's the appropriate leader. Some people really had a lot of skills to share, and yet uh, young, some young millennial <laughs> loud person, um, you know, sometimes took over instead of doing some of the hard work that some of the experienced activists who had run general assemblies and really large meetings and encampments before in other movements, but were, you know, older, um, they had great mm -hmm. ideas and yet they weren't accepted because they didn't fill that vision of being the young, energetic, white, educated um, leader that became kind of the default for the movement. Right. Well, yeah, this is a really important point. I think in general, the right wing is better at organization and structure and training leaders and following leaders. And the left tends to be a little too pro-democratic and then it leads can lead to chaos and inefficiencies and a lot of the problems that came out of Occupy. And I should say uh, during the Occupy, I was watching it very closely and I actually gave supportive housing to some people involved in Occupy Wall Street uh, coming out of New York City. Uh, but when I found out how it was organized with this structurelessness, I knew I did not want to participate because what I could see in my mind was 
endless conversations, battles about who would really have power and make decisions and directing and like interminable meetings <laughs> without a clear process for making a decision and just doing something and moving ahead. Uh, and women having a harder time and people of color having a harder time, people with less wealth and confidence having a harder time having their voices heard. So I have to say, I was, I felt a little validated when I read your, your book <laughs> that I would have been so frustrated had I gotten involved. Um, but talk a little bit about that, about women and people of color um, feeling marginalized, not accepted, even though they were great leaders and running organizations elsewhere, just were not given the space to be heard or listened to or even respected within Occupy and how that led to the splintering of the energy in the Occupy movement. Definitely. You describe it well. It was both uh, very energizing and people were coming to check out the movement from all different other kinds of movements. And at the same time, in the moment, it was tough to come to decisions and make plans with large groups of people. And um, there were many feminists who were watching the movement closely. Feminists were involved in creating even the first encampment at Zuccotti Park. And I reference Joe Riegers. She's a professor, um, an activist, and her conception of contemporary feminism today as everywhere, nowhere. So she was studying um, feminist groups that are part of feminist movements that exist on their own in various cities around the country. And I found this phenomena of everywhere and nowhere happening even within the Occupy movement. So the movement was not a feminist movement. It was not oriented from the beginning about addressing the uh, patriarchal and racial history of economic inequality. That was not really a part of the movement's framing from the start, which would have made it somewhat more toward a feminist movement. Um, yet feminists saw a lot of promise in the Occupy movement. Uh, they contributed, they brought more personnel, they raised issues about women's participation, such as um, needing safer spaces for women who were apprehensive about being in city centers and sleeping in the middle of a city overnight. Uh, this is something that um, for many women, you know, uh, having a safe street to walk down at night is not something that many women can enjoy even to this day. Um, and so on the one hand, feminists were this kind of watchdog who were commenting on the tactics and strategies of the movement and raising issues about, you know, how can we bring more women in? Who are the women who could comment on this press release? How can we make it 
comfortable for women to bring their children to the protests and for men too to bring their children to the protests. How do we make this a family-friendly um, encampment? Let's let's be real about the breadth of responsibilities that families have, and let's create a movement that can really encompass people in um, the diversity of, of how they live and their responsibilities. And so in that regard, they were everywhere. But then as far as the movement bringing in more of an intersectional analysis, bringing in the idea that women were being impacted greatly by this great recession, um, that uh, older black women homeowners were some of the most impacted by the great recession because they had been um, uh, encouraged to take on the adjustable rate mortgages, that then their interest and uh, in mortgage payments expanded greatly and many of them lost their homes. Um, and, and having that focus on women's particular experiences of the Great Recession never really made it into the center of the Occupy movement. This is why feminist groups really created their own spaces and their own groups, places where they could promote that analysis and support women, often women or femme, or gender queer leaders who were kind of coming at an analysis of the Great Recession and economics from that angle and try to promote that within the movement, but they needed these separate groups to be able to do it. I was so sad to learn how bad it was for feminists within side Occupy. I mean, I graduated from college back in the 1970s, and we thought, oh, okay, we're fighting this battle so our children and grandchildren don't have to deal with this. And here we are 40 years later dealing dealing with it. And um, so uh, I see how the splintering happened, and everything you say makes perfect sense. And I'm concerned about it, that here we are, like, 50 years into the modern women's movement. And we still have a problem when this mass movement arises to challenge the 1%, wealth inequality, problems of democracy, that women, no matter how smart, no matter how experienced, no matter how central to the issue, whether that be feminists who have experience organizing, or as you say, the Black women homeowners, who really bore the brunt of a lot of Wall Street shenanigans in the 2008 collapse. Um, we still had trouble getting in the middle uh, of the action and providing and being respected uh, as voices and as leaders in dealing with it. So we know that the idea of structurelessness is, is just dysfunctional on the face of it, that's not going to work. But what do you think would work? I mean, you've now had 10 years to reflect on, you've written the book, been involved. If you were advising people who want movements that can have big, bold 
change in our society and have broad-based support, how do you advise they be structured in terms of decision-making and making sure that women and people of color have real leadership roles if deserved? Feminists and women of color and um, uh, really feminists of any racial uh, orientation or sexual orientation need to be at the center of contemporary movements. They have feminist movements have been some of the longest running movements. We many people don't see it that way because feminists use a great variety of tactics. Some of them are not really directed to the public or they're not ones that are covered in the mass media, but feminists use uh, great community building tactics, artistic tactics, ma major uh, blogging and online actions. Feminists have a great diversity of uh, a tactical repertoire that they bring to movements. And feminists are critical by nature because of um, the women's exclusion and queer persons' exclusions from just about every um, organization and the history of, of our country and most institutions. And so they bring that critical voice to protests. And that is an important, it should be recognized by other activists as not a deterrent or something that's pulling away from creating a movement, but actually something that's really central to the movement, to dealing with those tough questions, to making analyses more complex, to bringing in that intersectional perspective, which is really what's orienting feminism right now, is that we cannot think about inequality as one dimensional. We cannot just think about class inequality. People of different races and ethnicities, people of different genders, people who have relatively more privilege because of their ability or, or less privilege because of, of their nationality. Uh, we Feminists have brought this analysis thanks to Kimberly Crenshaw, a professor and lawyer who developed the term intersectionality to recognize that inequality is complex. It's uh, a combination of people's varying degrees of privileges or oppressions. And we need to be really specific about those. And this is a way that many feminists today approach major social problems and provide leadership. I think our key example there is the Black Lives Matter movement led by three Black queer women who have formed the movement through an intersectional lens and we can see how uh, being specific about the complexity of inequality has made the, the movement very appealing for many people. Um, and so just to kind of sum up, um, contemporary movements that forget that history 
of feminism and that we've had black uh, feminist thought that's been developed for decades and that we can no longer just have movements that are focused on class and later we'll deal with race and gender you know once we figure out the economic dimension no that is that's not going to work it's not going to bring people in and it's actually not an accurate analysis of the inequalities that are shaping our country yeah that's really well put. And um, I think a lot of people did think with the Occupy movement, well, this is about wealth inequality and class. So let's focus on that. That's what we're all united around. And if we focus on that, then these other issues can be dealt with by other groups who focus on that. But that's not what we're focusing on. And I think kind of at the core of your argument is saying that's never going to work and that Occupy is actually a demonstration of why that won't work. Because if you try to focus on just the class, then these other issues are there and they're going to emerge and you need to deal with them. Uh, do you think there's any specific ways the Occupy movement could have dealt with them because what actually happened in Occupy movement is the feminists went off, they created feminist space, the people of color went off and formed people of color space, and the queer people went off and they formed their space. So it kind of fractured. And sometimes there can be those coming together and then it, they're tributaries and then they come back in and make the main movement stronger because of what they're working out in the smaller group. But that is not what happened in Occupy. They didn't come back in. Was there a way that the Occupy movement could have embraced those tributaries to make a stronger main current? So on a wide level or kind of a macro level things, as these tensions were festering within the movement. And there was so much debate happening online. And you could even see it in the encampments with different groups um, creating different kinds of protests and having very different discussions and a lot of arguments within the movement about the direction of the movement and especially that the movement was not really addressing the history of racial inequality and the ways that racial inequalities have impacted the economic crisis of the moment, let alone the history of this country, when those deep tensions and real substantive arguments arise within a social movement or within any organization, I think we need to learn from Occupy that it's time to really stop everything and figure out a way to bring people together, to have uh, real substantive listening sessions, to even consider things like the decolonize movement was bringing to the table, which was to rebrand the movement as decolonize to center those experiences of racial injustice and really kind of 
stopping things to address that instead of letting these separate groups keep working on their own. I, that's in the Occupy movement was a recipe for the movement fizzling, for people taking the great energies that they had and shifting it away from the main movement's message instead of reformulating the main movement message to be more inclusive of those groups that kind of broke away. Um, you know, in, in, the, in the small meetings, in the uh, various subgroups that were meeting, in some of the smaller encampments, uh, according to some of the facilitators or leaders who were aware of this, they were also making some micro or kind of interpersonal changes to address some of these issues. So the movement did put into effect some innovations when individuals knew about them and acted on them. Things like uh, progressive stack was it something that the movement did where if there was a speaking order and the person who was calling on people to speak and kind of running the meeting, if they noticed that there were some people at the end of the list or even some people in the room who hadn't spoken yet, and especially if these individuals were people who were maybe more typically marginalized, maybe um, new activists or uh, women or you, you name it in some other way or typically quieter, they would call on these people. And there was an acknowledgement within the movement, we want to not just have those loudest voices and people who are most comfortable speak, we want to hear from a diversity of people. So we're going to change up the speaking order. And even people who might have a lot to say are going to have to wait their turn or maybe not get a chance to speak so that we can really hear from um, people who are more marginalized. So there were some, there were some of those smaller actions that people were taking in the moment because they saw these tensions as a problem. It just was not so widespread. There wasn't a national training about it. It wasn't how everyone led meetings. And so we need some more of that kind of training going forward. Right. Uh, very interesting. And go forward we are because even though we've been talking a little bit about some of what happened that led to the fizzling of Occupy. It was such a powerful movement in this country and around the world. And it was addressing such a core problem of this extreme wealth concentration. I should say I'm in favor of people being rich. I have, um, you know, I want everybody to be wealthy. I want everybody to be economically secure. And that's why we have to change the way the rules are structured now to favor the top 1%. So, um, but the upside of the Occupy movement, and, and you touched on this as we talked earlier, the upside is it just spilled over and inspired and helped to guide and inform so many other movements. I mean, coming out of Occupy, a lot of people went into the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign, which was centrally focused on the problem of extreme wealth. Uh, we talked about the Black Lives Matter movement. A lot of the Occupy people kind of 
went and got involved there. We haven't even talked about the women's march, you know, that women in response to the traumatic experience of having Trump in the White House, uh, having the largest mass mobilization of people in the history of the country to say, we don't support this guy or what he stands for, and we're going to resist what he's trying to do. A phenomenal movement, still active now, even with Trump out of action. The Me Too movement coming up, um, the fight for 15 dollars an hour had a lot of juice and has had a lot of impact of which by the way we're actually getting there now the data is showing more companies are having to pay more workers a minimum of 15 dollars an hour to work the climate justice movement uh and all the activity around the dakota pipeline the gun control march for our lives uh and the pro-democracy movements all over the world now so um I, I see Occupy as like in some ways an expression of and a spark to all these other movements. Would you agree? We're in an incredible moment of activism and Occupy got people back into the streets. I think it rejuvenated people. It gave them some hope and it rearranged friendship and activist networks. You know, many activists were active before Occupy. <laughs> you know, Occupy can't take credit for all of those different actions, but I think that it's set a standard that we can organize quickly, we can come together in the streets, we can use social media effectively to create viral protests, and other movements have done that after Occupy. Um, you know, we're in an incredible moment of activism because veterans from the civil rights movement are active alongside young people who have come into political life through Occupy, through uh, activism against the Trump administration. And there are so many resources now to be active and so much that we've learned over the years of progressive activism from the fe feminist movements to environmental movements and more. And um, Occupy definitely played a part in uh, kind of setting a tone for this latest period of activism, both as a uh, very excited and energized movement. And also I think that tone of we have a lot to work on here because many recognized the tensions within the movement and sought to do things differently and, and create different kinds of movements uh, as they reflected on the ways that Occupy had a lot of kind of fault lines and, mm -hmm. and some of the, the challenges that the movement experienced. Right. And I'm wondering, you know, we have actually some members of the one percent are really our allies and they understand that the way we're going now is not sustainable i recently had as a guest on this show morris pearl a high-level wall street executive who now is the chair of patriotic millionaires and they're saying he just wrote a book called tax the rich he said the taxes on the wealthy are way too low 
and it's not fair. And please tax us more because that will mean we'll make more money because the way companies thrive is by having customers and the customers are people who have money they can spend. So you have to have more fair taxes, greater taxes on wealth and less on the uh, lower and middle class. So what do we do about our 1% members who are allies, like the patriotic millionaires? How do we include them? Any ideas? Ooh, that's a tough question and one that I don't get all that often. Um, that's all right. You can think about it. I didn't mean to throw you for a loop. <laughs> I was just curious because he was just on the show. And I, I think there is something to being united for what's best yeah. for all of us, what's best for the country. Morris gave a p eloquent explanation of why it's mm -hmm. best for the 1% to have fair taxes. So um, I'm thinking maybe the next movement we have is something around the 100% including those voices mm. like the patriotic millionaires. But we let's talk about that later. Think about it. Um, we just have one minute to wrap up here. So uh, what would you say are the most important takeaways from the Occupy movement? What do we have to learn going forward from Occupy? We have to have intersectional movements and really make an intersectional analysis central to how we think about not only our movements, but our organizations to bring in that race, class, gender analysis um, whenever we try to understand a social problem. So that's the biggest one. Yeah, I and, think so. And that and we need there are other ones about, you know, um, I think that flows into recognizing some of our default ways that we uh, organize to not be as diverse as we really want. I think we really want diversity, but I think we have to dig into the deep structures of inequality that shape so many of our institutions to not be diverse and not recognize um, non-traditional leaders and we need kind of a reckoning around that. We need, we need to be very conscious of elevating voices who may feel uncomfortable to us, who might not be those typical leaders. But if we want change, we need to do that. And again, that really goes back to intersectionality, um, to thinking about uh, why we have some people who are more privileged in a variety of areas than others. Right. And I would add, we need big, bold change. And then when people take action united, they can make big, bold change. And the work has begun. It's not yet done. So we're looking forward to the next round. So the book is, Are We the 99%? And um, that's all the time we have for now. But uh Heather Hurwitz, thank you so much for your fascinating work. Thank you. Wonderful talking with you. Listeners, look forward to seeing you next Thursday, 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern, as we explore ways to create a better America and a better world. Tune in. 
That's it for All Together Now. Eleanor Lacane signing off until next week. Thank you.